where we are in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. The disciples have just come off of a, an experience that was like nothing else that, that you can imagine. Uh, they have seen Jesus perform a miracle that is astounding. He took five little loaves and two small fish and he broke them and somehow from that he fed thousands and thousands and thousands of people right in front of their eyes. Now just imagine, I mean we read that story all the time, but just imagine if you'd have seen it, if you'd have watched it right in front of you, if you'd have scratched your head wondering exactly what had just happened. But the more you thought about it and the more you talked to the other disciples about it, it's just you're just astounded. And then he sends you out and you're collecting and there's all of these baskets left over and you never, it, it is imprinted forever on your mind. You never, ever, ever, ever forget something like that. And these guys had such a privilege of walking with the Savior and seeing him do things like that. And you would think that their faith would never waver again after watching something like that. But the Lord has a way of stretching our faith. And what I mean by that is, you know, where you are right now, you have, your faith is at a certain level, right? You've grown to a certain level, I hope, of trust in the Lord. This has been a gift from God, and He has blessed it and grown it. And, and there are certain things right now, if God were to put certain stresses in your life, all the way up to a certain point, you would, you would shine in faith because He has proven Himself trustworthy. You've seen it. You believe it. But the Lord does do this. He continues to orchestrate our circumstances in such a way as to stretch our faith beyond what it's already become. And that's what He is about to do with these disciples in the text that's in front of us. Beginning... In verse number 22, and I think this morning, instead of reading the whole text and then talking about it, we'll just sort of read it as I'll make comments as we go along, okay? So it's going to run from 22 to 33. The next paragraph here, as Matthew's recorded it, verse 22 says, Immediately he, that is Jesus, made his disciples, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, the other side of the Lake of Galilee there, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And of course, they stopped there and recognized that this was Jesus' intent all along, right? He had gotten in the boat on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee to go to the east side to spend some time alone with the Father, and, of course, the crowds had seen him get into the boat and go to the other side, and what happens? They all, on the shore, go around the lake and meet him on the other side on foot, and he gets there, 
And lo and behold, all the crowds are there. And instead of ignoring them, he's moved with compassion and he uh, teaches them, he heals their sick, and he ends up feeding them uh, with uh, this great miracle. Well, now, finally, the crowds are... uh, He dismisses the crowds. He sends his disciples in the boat ahead of him back to the other side of the sea. And he goes to where he wanted to be all along, to go up to the top of the mountain and to commune with God the Father. And that is what God wants to do with you and I. He wants to draw us into communion with Himself. Do you realize you were made for that? This is an astounding thing that God created mankind to bring them, to bring us into communion with Himself. Our sin has blocked that way, but God has made it possible again through Jesus Christ, through salvation in Jesus Christ, and coming to God in Christ, in prayer, you and I can have communion with deity. That's what you were made for. Your life was made to be in union with God, not not being one with God in the sense that we become God, but being in communion with God to the level that God is in us and we in Him through the Lord Jesus Christ, our intermediary. You were made for that. Don't settle for anything less. You know, we get so caught up in in the things of the world, we look to them for, for our satisfaction and our hope and our sense of purpose and well-being and prosperity and what you and I need more than anything else is to be all consumed with God Himself, to have such a, a fellowship with God that it surpasses everything in terms of satisfying our souls. And This is what we were made for. Our Lord gives us this example. He has communion with God and later... He prays for His disciples that just as Father, you are in Me, He says, so so that they also may be in us. I in them, in the disciples, and you in Me. We can have communion with God through the Lord Jesus Christ in our prayers. I wonder how much time you spend in communion with God. How has your fellowship with God been this week? Brothers and sisters, God forbid that we should be a group of people who are religious just in our minds and just in our doctrine on a piece of paper, but we haven't had communion with the living God. What an impact it would be on this world to be confronted with a people who have walked with God Himself, whose faces shine with the very presence of the Holy God, whose lives are contagious because God is in them. And this is what our Lord sought. He sought, even in His earthly life, to have this kind of communion with His Father through prayer. But even though our Lord Jesus was up on the mountain and He was in deep fellowship with the Father, His people were never far from His mind, His disciples. And so we read in verse 23, look at the middle of the verse now. 
that when the evening came, he was up there alone, but the boat with the disciples by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Apparently there's enough light, Jesus is up on the top of the mountain and it's still light enough that he can see out there on the sea, the wind is picking up and the waves are churning, the boat is being smashed about. But then we read this startling statement, verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Which is a startling statement on two levels. First and most obvious, he came walking on the sea. I mean, Matthew just records it like it's just a matter of course. He came to them walking on the sea. And we read it because we know what's going to happen as almost a matter of course. But he came to them walking on the water. This is just absurd, right? (laughs) Matthew, I don't know why he didn't make a bigger deal out of it. And lo and behold, or something like that. He just says, Jesus came to them walking on the sea as if it's like it's no big deal. As if here is the Lord of all creation, and when He steps out, all creation bends to His will. Even the sea becomes a footpath for Him. I mean, He is the Lord over all. All of the raging of the storms and the turmoil in this cosmos is under His sovereign rule, and He is the Lord over all of it. It's almost as if you don't make a big deal of it because of who He is. He steps out and of course the sea becomes a path for His feet. What else would you expect, right? This is the way the Old Testament pictures God, Jehovah, the one and only God. The Bible says in Job chapter 9, verse 8, that God, Yahweh, tramples the waves with His feet. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 16 says that God, the Lord, makes a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters. And so here now is the Son of God. And of course, the sea becomes a foot, a path for His feet. Here is a man who is at the same time Yahweh, the God of all the Bible, the one and only true God who lives, and yet here he is in human flesh, the Son of Man. In his deity, Jesus Christ steps out onto those waves and is completely unaffected by all of the raging storms. In His deity, all of that bends to His will. At the same time, in His humanity, He is not unmoved by the fact that we live down here in this chaos. And it is that compassion that brought Him out there to the sea, to those disciples, His desire to demonstrate His deity and His power for their good and for His eternal glory. So here is the Son of God who comes walking to them and He comes walking to them on the sea. But there's another startling thing about the verse, verse 25 again. 
And it's not the manner in which he comes to them, but the uh, timing. It's not quite so obvious, I think, this point, but if you think about it, it becomes clearer. It says that he came to them in the what? The fourth watch of the night. So um, it seems to be a Roman convention um, to set up guards throughout the night, and each one takes a watch, and there are four watches through the night. So presumably it's sometime from 6 to 9 p.m. is the first watch, right? And then 9 to midnight, and midnight to 3. And so we have to assume this is probably the wee hours of the morning, 3, 4, 5 o'clock, whatever, sometime in there. And, and so what, what's startling is that it was, it was the evening before when the Bible says, and in fact, John, I think it was Mark, maybe it's Mark, I believe it was Mark that says he saw them out there on the sea. I mean, obviously, as God, he knows everything. But, but he sees them out there on the sea, and, and so obviously it's, it's still getting dark. And then now, how many hours pass before he does something about them? He sees them and they're struggling, but he lets them struggle for hours on end, presumably. You know, four, five, six, eight hours, however long this has been. They're out there fighting against the sea and they're, 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 they're rowing. They're, they've got the sails up. Maybe the sails are down because the wind is too strong. And I mean, these guys are pretty seasoned fishermen. They've been out on the sea many times. I'm sure they've been in a storm or two themselves. But uh, this is a scary thing, and, and it's a rough thing, and they're weary. Can you imagine how bone-weary you would be after being drenched and working against the waves all night long? I don't know if you've ever been out on a boat in, when the waves are real choppy and you've been try, a paddle boat of some sort and been trying to get back to the land, maybe one of those little paddle boats with your feet or maybe a canoe or something. And if you're going up against the wind, that could be a real challenge. Uh, so imagine now here these guys in this big storm and Jesus sees them down there and they're struggling and he just lets them struggle. For all night long, they struggle. Until finally in the early hours of the morning, he comes to them. And I tell you that to make this point, that Jesus' plan is not to keep us from trouble, but to teach us through trouble. This is the way the Lord works with us. Amen. How many have, 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 have experienced that, right? How, almost everyone who's been a Christian for very long has experienced this, that Jesus teaches His people through trouble, that He does a mighty work in them and around them and through them most poignantly, most powerfully in their times of trouble. The rest of the Bible will bear this out as well. He leaves us in our trouble just long enough for the trouble to do its good work. And somebody says, well, well when is that going to happen? When have I had enough trouble? When has the trouble done enough? When have I... You know, we, we, we go through our trouble and we say, Lord, I get it. Okay, I've learned whatever lesson you're trying to teach me. I don't need any more trouble. I've got it. I'm there already. Huh? When is the trouble enough? And the answer is when it's done. <laughs> then it's enough. When God says, okay. When He brings us out beyond to the other side, whenever that is, now in this life or in the life to come, whenever the trouble is finally done, then it's been enough. 
And only then. Until then, we have to trust the manifold wisdom of God. Amen? We do. We have to trust the infinite wisdom and the perfect goodness of our Heavenly Father and wait. Like these guys waited and worked all night long. How long? How long? The saints, the martyred saints under the altar in the book of Revelation cry out that very question, right? How long? How long until you avenge us? And the answer comes back to them, wait and rest a little longer. In other words, it's not for them to know and it's not for us to know when the troubles are going to end, when everything's going to kind of come out fine. I'm not, I'm not given all of the, the future. I'm given right now and I'm supposed to learn the faithfulness of God in this very moment. Wait a little longer. The Lord would maybe say that to some of you this morning. Wait a little longer. Rest in me a little longer. Trust a little longer. Peter, as we've already studied in the book of First Peter, he says this, after you have suffered a little while, God will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The Lord stretches our faith. He tests our faith, our reliance on Him. It's kind of like the stretching of your body in exercise. How many of you guys have ever lifted weights? Probably if you're a guy here, at some point in your life you tried to lift some weights, right? may have lasted for a day. may have lasted for a week. You know, some of us do every once in a while. I, I lift a couple little barbells about every couple months, you know. Not sure that does anything. But, um, you know, I happen to think about it. I'm like, yeah, I need to do a little exercise, so get in there and pick up some weights. You know, when you lift weights, I mean, when you, when you do exercise of any sort, I think it's true, right, that, that you don't get the most benefit from it until you get to a certain, push yourself to a certain level. In other words, our bodies are already built up to a certain point where they can withstand so much stress. And to really get them to be stronger, whether it's you know our hearts or our, our skeletal muscles or whatever it is, but to get them to be stronger, what we really need to do is push ourselves to push the envelope a little bit beyond what we're already capable of, beyond what we're already pretty comfortable with doing. And so the weightlifter gets in there and he, he continues to add a little bit more weight and a little bit more weight and a little bit more weight. He's ever pushing his body. He's stretching himself. He's stretching himself to the limit. You ever feel like when you work out like that, you're, you're just, you know, this is just about, this is, okay, now I know I'm at my limit. And then you push yourself just a little bit more beyond what you think your limit is, and now you've grown a little stronger. And, 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 and you stretch yourself to the point where, where they even say that, that there are almost like micro tears in the muscle fibers themselves that when they heal back become stronger and bigger. And, and so this is the way you grow, right? This is, you're stretched beyond your limits to the point where your limits are tested and you find the end of them. 
And when you find the end of your limits, then you're, then you're beginning to be stronger for the next time. And, and in a way, that is exactly what the Lord does with our faith in Christ, our faith in Him. He wants us to see Him and how trustworthy He is. And every one of us who's ever become a Christian has become a Christian precisely because we believed He was trustworthy. We renounced our own thinking and we accepted His. We renounced our own righteousness and we ran to Jesus because we saw He's what I need. But what the Lord does is He takes our vision of His trustworthiness and He continues to put us in such circumstances where that faith is stretched to its very limits. He says, what will you trust me for? If if this stress comes in your life, will you still love me? If this happens, will you still trust me? If, If What if you lose this? Will I still be enough for you? And, and, and he brings us, all of us, I mean, this is the way of the Christian life. He brings us, all of us, to the place where he's probing the limits of our faith. And in doing so, he's stretching, and he's, it, feel, it literally feels like when you're lifting weight, you're, you're, you're te- he's tearing you up. But in the end, his intent is all good for you so that you might get a, even in your failure, you might get a greater glimpse of himself and his trustworthiness and his sufficiency. And and the other side of this, you may look back and know that he was enough. The Lord intentionally delayed in coming to these people, and I think, Often the Lord stretches our faith by His delays. By His delays in His deliverances. He did it with Mary and Martha. Remember what happened? They sent word to Him and said, Lazarus is sick. And literally, the Bible says, this is so amazing. The Bible says He loved them and so... He stayed two more days where he was. He stayed because he loved them. They said, he's sick. Come, heal him. You know, that was the implication. Will you come? Help him now. I know if you get here, you can do something about it. But he stayed where he was. It's like he did up there on the mountain. Right? He sees the disciples and they're fighting against the storm and he stays where he is. And, of course, they send, they come to him. By the time he gets there, Lazarus is already dead. In fact, by the time he leaves, um, uh, presumably Lazarus is already dead. And Martha comes to him and says, if only you'd have gotten here, what? Sooner. You see, their faith was already strong enough up to a point. Their faith was strong enough to say, if only you'd have been here, you could have done something about it. Right now, I believe if you if he's sick, you could have healed him. That their faith had already grown to that point. But he pushes the edge, he pushes the envelope of their faith by his delays. And in his infinite wisdom, he allowed Mary, Martha, and he allowed the disciples, and he allows you and I to reach the extremity of our 
trust before he intervenes. And while it feels almost like abandonment, it is the essence of his love for us to show us a little bit more of himself, to bring us a little more to the end of ourselves, manifest our need. Wait. Wait on the Lord. Kevin DeYoung reminds us that Abraham was waiting and waiting for a child. Joseph was wasting away in prison. Moses was wandering in the wilderness. He says, can you believe that God has something good in store for you? Will you trust Him that someday when you see your beginning and middle with the ending in view, that it will make sense? Can you hope against hope? that God has not forgotten you, that His promises are true, and that He is up to something? That's the test of faith, and it was the test for these guys, these men in this boat, Jesus' disciples. And Finally, when all hope was lost, He came to them. But of course, when the disciples saw Him, um, they weren't quite sure what to think. Verse 26, Verse 26, take a look. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. They said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. They could, all they could imagine, I guess, was a, to see this person on top of the water. Was that, this, this, that it must be a disembodied spirit hovering over the surface. But verse 27, it says, But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter, verse 28, Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So Peter, right? Always the outlier. It's a ghost. Is it a ghost? Jesus says, no, it's me. If it is you, let me come to you. It's I don't know, well, how to think about what was motivating Peter. I read a few people trying to guess at that, and Matthew doesn't really go into it. Best I can tell, it's sort of a mix of wariness and, and faith. Is it really the Lord, or are, we, are our senses tricking us? But if it is Him, He can do anything. He, he's walking on the water. If, if, it's, if it's the Lord who can make even the water to be a pathway, then, then let it be so. And let me walk on the water. You know, show us. And Peter's desire always seemed to be to enter into fully the experience of his master. And that's not a bad thing. Christians are supposed to enter into the experience, not just the knowledge about their master, but they enter into the experience of their master. I'm sure for Peter this was naive. He was naive about this in so many ways. Like one time where Jesus says, um, when he's washing their feet, and he says, if you don't, wa- if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part with me. You don't have any 
uh, experience with me. And what does Peter say? Well, then wash my hands and my head. Wash me all over, Jesus. Right? Or uh, shortly after that, where Jesus says um, that he is going to go and he's going to die. And Peter says, Lord, if you go to death, we'll go with you too. He is willing and wanting to enter into the experience of his Lord. And Jesus looks at him and he says, you will follow me. And Peter would. He would enter into the experience of his Lord, even in his suffering. Peter would know the fellowship of his suffering. But the Lord also said to him, but, but not now. You're not ready yet. In fact, before the night's over, you're going to deny that you know me. You see, Peter's faith had to be stretched, had to be grown. And I tell you, there is a sense in which Peter will even need to be brought to the place where he will fail and the Lord restore him with mercy so that Peter may see more clearly who his Lord is. And when he sees him after that, now Peter will be a changed man and will stand in the face of Thousands of Jews gathered together and said, you crucified the Lord of glory and literally lay down his life for the cause of his sake. But he's, the Lord is stretching him. He's growing him. He's bringing him into that. And Peter's desire is, ought to be all of our desire to enter into the experience of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Christianity is all about. It's not just knowing things about Jesus. It's living out the life of Jesus in all of its ramifications. It's living in communion with Christ. And this is what Peter desired. So he says, let me get out of the boat. Let me come to you. Let me be with you. And so, verse 29, our Lord says to him, come. And Peter got out of the boat. (laughs) This is just amazing. And he walked on the water. I don't know that there's ever been anybody else who's had quite that experience besides the Lord, but Peter gets out, he walks on the sea, just like the Savior. And I tell you, it is amazing that Christians um, will do things in communion with their Savior that, that will astound them. Then he says, but, verse 30... But when he saw the wind, the effects of the wind, the storm, the waves, when he saw the wind, he was afraid and he began to sink. Now, Peter's faith to me, honestly, was pretty amazing. I don't know that I would have, I don't know that I, at that, who knows what we would have done, right? Would we have gotten out of the boat? Would we have said, Lord, let me walk on the water too? Um But in spite of how amazing Peter's faith was here, it was stretched to the limit. As he looked around and he saw this disjunction, this crazy, weird disjunction between what he was doing, 
what the Lord called him to do and the circumstances that were around him. What? <laughs> it's like he woke up and he, or he fell asleep, right? He, depending on how you look at it. But he looked around at the waves and he said, what am I doing? What kind of craziness is this? And his faith was stretched and now it had met its limit. You want to know how strong Peter's faith was? You can tell. Here's where it breaks. Here's where, the, here's where those faith muscles begin to just tear. And maybe you felt like that sometimes. Maybe you felt like you have, you, tr- you do trust the Lord and you believe Him and no matter what, you love Him. But at some point, you felt like your faith was stretched to its very limit. Like, Lord, if you, if you let one more thing happen, I, I'm just, I'm, I think I'm going to fall apart. <laughs> so this is where he was and he looks around and he begins to doubt. But even in his doubts and in his fears, even when his faith wavered and he begins to sink, what does he do? Tell me, what does he do? He cries out to Jesus, doesn't he? Even as he's going down, even as he's lost his faith, or I I wouldn't say he's lost his faith, um, but his in his experience, he's 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 begun to waver, he's begun to be double-minded, right? And, and so he's looking around and he begins to sink. But even as he's sinking, he knows there's only one hope for him. He, he's not lost faith in the Lord. So he says, Lord, save me. He's still, he's still I feel like, maybe you've, maybe you've felt like this too. When your faith has been so taxed and so tried, maybe by temptation and sin and just an awful time with it or just just spiritual depression that has come over you or just just awful circumstances that you're having to deal with or or just the never ending going on of difficulty and when is it ever ever going to end and you've almost come to the end of yourself and and you feel like you're breaking under it but you still say to yourself you still say to yourself with the words of the apostles where else can I go? Where else am I going to turn? You have the words of eternal life. I mean, even if I don't feel like I have enough faith even to, to say I trust you in this, I have to say I, there's nobody else I do trust. Uh, there's no other hope for me. Even while Peter is sinking, even while he's got his eyes off Jesus, he's running out to Jesus and saying, save me. Bottom line, he is a believer. And, and so... Even though his faith is tested and pulled to the very end, yet he turns to the Lord and Jesus responds with both gentle chastening and great grace. Verse number 31. Take a look at it. And Jesus, what's the next word? Jesus immediately reached out his hand and he took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I love the word immediately because Jesus doesn't chide him first and then save him. <laughs> As he's underwater there somewhere, his head's bobbing up. Hey, you need to have more faith, Peter. Don't you know who I am by now? He reaches out and he saves him. And then he, and he gently chides him. Oh, you of little faith. I find that the Lord upholds us even in our wavering faith. He's merciful 
to those who are at the very end of their faith as long as their faith is in Him. And this is a blessing, friends. We are not saved by the strength of our faith, but by the object of our faith. And it is Jesus, the object of His faith, that saves this poor man. But His intent is to stretch His faith, and He he does chide Him. You notice, as long as Peter is thinking about Jesus and His power, his, the miracle that he's seeing in front of him. As long as his eyes are on Jesus, he's fine. But when he begins to think more about the overwhelming nature of his circumstances, he wavers. And that's true for us, you know. In our times of great distress, and, and it's like the chaos of life is around us and the storms are, are blowing. And when we begin to set our minds on the insurmountable chaos around us, when that begins to be what fixates our imagination, our thinking, that's when we, that's when we begin to sink. Where is your mind? What do you set your mind upon when you go through times like that? No, Peter didn't lose his faith, but it was stretched to his limits. It, the word doubt here, Jesus says you doubted. Um, the word is not a word that means that Peter lost all faith in him. The word's used twice, both in times in Matthew. It's not a word that has to do with theological uncertainty about who Jesus is, but about practical hesitation and wavering and double-mindedness, the kind of doubts that even true believers can have. You can be a believer and your faith is mixed with doubt sometimes. How often must the Lord say to us, O you of little faith. You know, the disciples should have remembered with David, if I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall your hand lead me and your right hand shall hold me. You and I should be able to hold on to His words. Our faith should already be able to apprehend and hold on to His words. I will never leave you or forsake you. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Your Father knows that you have need of these things even before you ask Him. He cares about even the little sparrows that fall and the plants. If the Lord clothes the plants of the field and takes care in His knowledge of every bird that falls, are you not much better than they? He says, How shall He not, who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him graciously give us all things, all of these things ought to encourage our faith, and yet at times we waver. And when we waver in our faith, what happens? We give in to sin. We grow anxious or fearful. We look around for another way out. 
But I tell you again, look at the passage. Look at the, look at the Savior of the passage. Look at the Savior who is. He is merciful even to those whose faith is wavering. And He upholds them. And in the end, they're not lost. Why? Because of He who is the object of their faith. And in the end, the disciples' faith was strengthened. That's what I want you to see. In the end of the story, the disciples' faith was stronger than what it used to be. Verse 32, And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, which is like, what happened? Was that a miracle too? We don't, we're not recorded that Jesus said anything like, be still. But he got in the boat. The, the trouble, it's like Jesus had said, trouble, I need you to do a work in these people's lives. And when, there, when, the, when trouble's work was done, then trouble went away. Jesus said, I need you, even trouble, to bring about good in these people's lives. So the wind ceased, and John actually records that it was almost like another miracle. As you sort of have to read between the lines and figure out what does he mean, because he says, and immediately they were at the shore. So was this some sort of miraculous transportation, or they just, you know, all time and sense was just lost to them, and it was just like they were in chaos, then there was Jesus, then everything was good. <laughs> but in the end, all of this is brought to an end. And verse 33, and those in the boat worshipped him saying, truly you are the son of God. And That is where we see the growth. Because if you remember, they faced similar circumstances before. Uh, and Matthew had actually recorded them back in chapter 8. Remember that there we read about another time they were out on the lake. Um, and this time Jesus was actually with them in the boat and there was a huge storm that came up and Jesus was asleep in the boat and they were afraid and they, they were you know, anxious and they were you know, doubting the goodness of God and, and why has God brought us out here to kill us and does He care about us anymore? You know, and they were all in the same way and Jesus stood up and this time He spoke and he rebuked the waves and everything just calmed down. And the Bible says at the end, they were said to themselves, what? What sort of man is this? <laughs> so you can see, even from chapter 8 to chapter 14 here, a progression in their faith. A progression in their apprehension of who Jesus is. And to be sure, I think they had faith back in chapter 8, but it was a very muddled faith and a very, very little faith, but now it's grown to a greater expression and understanding of who this man is who stands before them. He is truly the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, so our faith, our faith, yours and mine, is being strengthened, in the process of being strengthened by the wisdom and the sovereignty of Christ. And it's being strengthened by being pushed to extremities that it has never faced before. And if you are not in the point right now in your life where your faith is being stretched to its limits, just wait around. <laughs> because it probably will be.
the Lord is bringing us even to the point, perhaps where our faith begins even to waver, where He exposes to us our own lack of faith. But if we are believers, brothers and sisters, we will instinctively cry out. Even when we are stretched to the point of failing, we will cry out, Lord, save me. Lord, help. I trust you. I don't trust you like I should, but at at the deepest bottom of my soul, I trust you. I have nowhere else to go. Only you are able to save. And you know what happens when, when we get to those points in our lives? He proves himself to be trustworthy. He proves himself to be sufficient. He gives us a greater glimpse of who he is. And he's enough. And it happens again and again and again and again for the people of God in the perfect wisdom of God so that they might be drawn into a greater communion with Him, a greater worship of Him, an appreciation and awe for who He is. That This explains what God's been up to in your life. Here is an illustration. Some of you are having your faith muscles Stretched right now, even torn. Maybe the Lord has manifested in recent days the limitations of your faith because at some point your faith broke into sin, into doubt, into anger or bitterness or envy or fear or despair even. But I tell you again that he is so amazingly wise as to bring all of our circumstances to bear, to delay long enough, to use trouble just enough that our faith is grown, our dependence is is manifest, our love for him is strengthened. So trust the Savior. Trust Him. He means your good. And if you start sinking, cry out to Him. Remember who He is. The Son of God. And even in the midst of your chaos, worship Him. Our Heavenly Father, our Savior, Lord Jesus, We thank you for the way that you have stretched and grown our faith to where it is today. We thank you for the faith that saves, the Christ that saves, and it is our desire to see him more clearly. Show us how trustworthy he is. Show us how sufficient he is for everything that we need. Lord, we pray for your special blessing on those whose faith is really being tested right now. That you would uphold them. That they would not sink and fall. That they would not be unbelievers. But that they would believe. Jesus, grab hold of them. 
even in their failures, and lift them up. My feet had almost slipped. I had almost gone down to the depths. My heart was almost embittered, but you upheld me with the right hand of your righteousness. And so we stand, Lord. Please cause your people to stand, your disciples. Jesus, take pity upon us. Please be merciful. Remember that we are dust. God, help us to see your Son more clearly, we pray. And ask it in his name. Amen.